0: Uh, and take your copy of God's Word this morning and uh, open it or swipe in it or tap your way to that location to uh, 1 Peter chapter 4, uh, beginning in verse 12. If you're a parent or a school teacher or a coach uh, or you've ever known one, you've probably heard or said the phrase, If I've told you once, I've told you a hundred times, right? the the importance uh, of repetition for teaching critical things. We tell our children uh, the same things over and over and over again so that they'll know maybe the rules of the house or how they're to act in public, uh, that they need to brush their teeth every morning. Uh, Coaches tell their players uh, certain things to do and to remember. You run through drills, repeating it over and over and over again, getting those repetitions down so that when game time comes uh, and the play is called, it's just execution of the play is just automatic. Uh, teachers over and over telling their students time and time again, repeating lessons over and over and over again so that children will retain and remember important pieces of information, knowledge, knowing how to solve certain problems. The things that are the most important to us in life, in sports, in school, in our families, are worth repeating. And sometimes we have to repeat them ad nauseum so that we actually get the point. When I was in youth, uh, my youth pastor, Robert Wright, many of you know him, would always tell us, how do you learn anything? And the answer was repetition, 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 right? Always repeating. So uh, remembering and reminding yourself of these most important things. Why do I begin our sermon or a time of of study of God's word this morning this way? Well, because in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19, we're going to hear something we've already heard in Peter's letter. We're going to hear things, hear Peter say things that we've already recognized, we've already talked about, we've already applied to our lives. So why do we look at it again? Why does Peter have to include this for uh, uh, maybe a third time in his letter? Because it's that important. God doesn't put things in his word by accident. He's not inspired the authors of his word to to write these things in this way, to repeat things uh, because they have nothing better to do, or he just wants them to take up space. He tells us things over and over and over again so that we as believers, we as followers of Jesus, will get it and apply it and live it. So this morning we're going to look at... The, uh, again, the theme of suffering in the life of the believer and suffering well in a way that glorifies God. As we look at these verses this morning, we're going to see that, that Christian, your, God is using your suffering for the name of Christ to make you like Jesus. That we've already seen. We're going to see that again. And so knowing that, you ought to joyfully expect suffering. You should look forward to suffering with joy. And when it comes, when suffering does come for your faith, when opposition does come for your uh, faith in Jesus and your faithfulness to him, you should, you ought to remain unshaken in your faith to Jesus and to the true gospel and to continue in the midst of suffering to entrust your life, good or bad, easy or hard, to a good God whose will is to make you ready for the resurrection. Let's stand together as we read God's word. First Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. Peter, carried along by the Holy Spirit, writes this. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. God add blessing to the reading of his word. You can be seated. Peter, for maybe the third or fourth time in this letter hitting on the fact that Christians will suffer for their faith. We spoke several weeks ago as we begin this series about the fact that that Peter is writing before uh, Christians are being systematically persecuted uh, in the Roman Empire. Although those to whom he is writing are likely beginning to experience pressure or opposition, uh, maybe difficulty in their life for being a follower of Christ. And so yet here again, in sort of his final uh, exhortation to suffer well, Peter points them to some critical truths about suffering as a believer. The first is this, that Christians ought to, as we see in verses 12 and 13, expect suffering and to welcome it with joy. To expect suffering, to expect opposition, and to welcome it with joy. As is normal for Peter, and we've seen this in several places, he gives us a couple of commands here in verses 12 and 13. These commands contrast one another, yet they fit together to to say essentially the same thing. In verse 12, he says his first command, do not be surprised. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening. We ought to expect suffering to come. He says don't be surprised by a fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. Already Peter has alluded to this kind of language, this kind of fiery testing uh, related to our trials. In 1 Peter 1, verses 6 and 7, there he writes, and you'll remember, in this, that is the the gospel, the hope of the resurrection, in this you rejoice, Peter says, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness, genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by by fire may be found to result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Don't be surprised at the fiery trial, Peter says. What does he mean by fiery trial? Well, this term, fiery trial, or just the image of fire, is not to be taken literally. Uh, they're not, the Christians are not yet literally burning in Rome for their faith, although they will in a few short years after Peter writes this letter. Rather, the trials that Peter refers to are fiery in the sense that they break us down and they burn off the attachments to sin that we have, the, the attachments to sin that we even maintain in our life. Trial in the life of the believer is purifying as fire is. These kinds of trials that that Peter's indicate are, are, uh, that Peter refers to are indicated to, to sanctify the church, to make us holier. He says, don't be surprised by this fiery trial, by this purifying opposition, purifying uh, persecution for your faith, as though something strange were happening. Peter's reminding the church here for what may seem like maybe the hundredth time in the short letter that friction in the life of the believer because of our faith is normal. It's not weird when people insult you for being a Christian. You are not strange for, for being uh, spoken to in an offensive way because of your faith in Christ. That's normal. Christians who by their salvation are, are residents of a heavenly kingdom, we live as strangers in this strange world, but we're never to understand suffering or persecution or opposition for our faith as something that is strange. It's normal. And since it's normal... We should not be surprised by suffering when it comes, but rather, as Peter says in verse 13, rejoice. This is the second of the commands. Do not be surprised, but rejoice. Rejoice in suffering. Rejoice when it comes. Do you know what, do you know what rejoicing looks like? Of course you do. You see it every Saturday afternoon on TV when you're watching your favorite football, uh, college football team play. Or when your daughter scores a goal in her soccer game. You see it when your favorite band plays your favorite song at the concert you just went to. It's, a, it's in the response that you get to the phone call from your new boss telling you that you got the job. Rejoicing is a fist in the air. Dancing in your living room. Tears in your eyes kind of rejoicing. That's what Peter is talking about here. That kind of rejoicing, he says, you are to have in Suffering. That kind of rejoicing in suffering seems counterintuitive. Why would I put my fists in the air, dance in my living room with tears in my eyes, shouting, shouting words of rejoicing when I'm hurting? Physical and emotional pain are rarely seen as close friends of joy by the world. But in the life of Christian, joy and suffering are designed, are intended to be very close friends. How so? Because, as Peter says, we rejoice as we share in Christ's suffering. As Jesus suffered according to the will of God for the forgiveness of sins, dying on the cross, when the Christian suffers in the name of Jesus, he is following in the steps of Jesus, being conformed to his image. Jesus suffered for us, and as we suffer for our faith in him, we are being made like him. Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, he says, I may know him in the power of his resurrection, and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul looks forward to suffering for the name of Christ, because he knows that he is being made to be like Jesus. In Acts chapter 5, there we see the uh, apostles are arrested and uh, and tried before uh, council. They're even beaten for their faith in Acts chapter five verses forty and forty one. We read this, and when they, that is the apostles, or excuse me, the council, had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to go speak, not to speak in the name of Jesus, and then they let them go. So we have the apostles being uh, 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 receiving suffering for their faith, beaten for their faith in Acts five forty one. We read this of the apostles. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 through 12. There Jesus, again, in the Sermon on the Mount, at the end of the Beatitudes, he says this. Blessed are those And in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8, Paul instructs the young minister, Timothy, they're saying, therefore, do not be ashamed uh, of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Have you gotten it yet? Suffering in the life of the Christian is normal. It's to be expected. And when it comes, we rejoice. We rejoice because we're sharing in Christ's suffering, following in his Footsteps, And also we rejoice looking forward to Christ's return and to our own resurrection. A great part of the reason for our rejoicing in suffering is in knowing that even as our character is being made to look like Jesus when we suffer for his name, that we are also being prepared to rejoice in him when he comes again in glory. The suffering we endure for Christ in this age and the rejoicing we have in it is precisely what God has ordained to be what results in our joy at the age to come. Your rejoicing and suffering now, Christian, is preparation. It's practice for how you should rejoice when Christ comes again. So then, Christian, knowing that suffering is not a surprise... Knowing you ought to receive it with joy. Then prepare your heart and mind now. Do it today. Get your head straight. Get your your mindset to receive suffering for your faith in Jesus with much joy. Prepare for it. Be determined to do so. Commit to it. Looking forward to Christ returning without joyfully looking forward to suffering for his name now is like looking forward to having six-pack abs but never going to the gym. On the day Christ returns to call the church to himself, friends, I want to be among those who are best prepared to rejoice the most at his coming. I want to be ready to rejoice on that day. But I fear that too many of us fear suffering for his name more than we fear God's judgment and we run from it. We hide from suffering. We try to minimize suffering in this life by living as, we said before, undercover Christians being less obvious followers of Jesus. So, friend, looking at your own mentality about suffering today, looking at how you look forward to or or are expecting suffering or preparing for suffering, if you're to continue in the way that you are now regarding uh, receiving opposition for your faith, what will the final physique of your joy be in Christ's appearing? If all else remains equal and you keep preparing for suffering or or dealing with suffering in the way that you deal with it today for your faith, what will your suffering look like when Christ comes again? Will Will it be amazing? Will it be astounding? Are you practicing for joy now, ready to execute the greatest joy you've ever executed at Christ's appearing? Or are you running from suffering robbing yourself of the joy for suffering in Christ's name and for following in His footsteps, not preparing yourself as as much as you ought for His return. So we should not uh, be surprised by suffering. We should expect it and expect it with joy. But then in verses 14 to 16, we see Peter saying that even as we receive suffering with joy, we are to keep an unshaken confidence in Christ in the midst of distress. Keep an unshaken confidence in Christ in distress. He says in verse 14, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. In verse 14, we, we, Peter gives us his instruction on how we can keep an unshaken confidence in Christ because he tells us that we can know that as we're suffering for faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit dwells in us to help us. Peter assures us that if we should suffer for Christ in this life, we should see it for the blessing that it is as we're made like Jesus in our suffering. But also, there is this additional assurance to be taken by the believer as we encounter opposition or oppression for our trust in Jesus. Peter says that if you suffer, you can know that the Holy Spirit of God has come to rest upon you. If you suffer for Christ, the Holy Spirit is in you to help you. The Holy Spirit of God is the third person of the Trinity. He is co-equal and co-eternal with God the Father and the Son. He is sent by the Son to live in the hearts of those who trust in Jesus. The Holy Spirit lives in you, Christian, to teach you, to guide you, to convict you of sin, and to encourage you in righteousness, especially in the midst of suffering. So... Christian, should you suffer for your faith, Peter says, know that when it happens, God's very spirit is on you to help you to rejoice as you are conformed to the character of Jesus through the pain and insult and abuse for Christ's name that you receive. You can keep an unshaken confidence in Christ because you know that the Holy Spirit dwells in you to help you, Christian. But also, you ought to keep an unshaken confidence in Christ in the midst of distress for your faith, knowing that there is no shame in suffering for doing what is true, right, and good. There's no shame in suffering for what is right. Peter goes on here in verse 15 to say that there's no confidence of being made like Jesus if our suffering is because we have acted immorally. He says, none of of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. That is to say, suffering for bad behavior or for criminality is not Christian suffering, but rather a just judgment upon you. So friend, if you are in jail because you have stolen something or killed somebody or whatever, don't count that as suffering for your faith just because you believe in Jesus. You're suffering because you're a criminal, and that's God's judgment upon you. But, but if you're not acting immorally, if you're not acting in an ungodly way, if instead you are following faithfully Jesus every step of the way, desiring to be made more like him, to to, to share the gospel, to to become uh, sanctified as you grow in your faith in Jesus, and then you suffer, well, then that's a good thing. He goes on to say, Peter goes on to say, if you suffer not as an evildoer, but as a Christian, you should not be ashamed. You may find it Interesting to know that the word Christian is only used three times in the entire Bible. Only used three times in the entire Bible. All three of them in the New Testament. Two of them in Acts, and then one here in First Peter. That word, that name Christian, which, which means little Christ, is a name given to believers from outsiders, by outsiders, people who are not Christians. Calling these followers of Jesus Christian. And it was not, it was not initially a self-given designation by the church. They called themselves believers or followers of the way. Even extra biblical evidence from uh, from some letters that were traded between a Roman governor and an emperor uh, towards the end of the first century would seem to indicate, even at that time, by the end of the first century, that the word Christian was a derogatory term. It was meant as an insult. Romans called believers in Jesus Christians to insult them. So Peter says in verse 16, if you suffer as a Christian, if you suffer as one who has spoken uh, uh, um, uh, uh, badly of, someone who has spoken of in an insulting way, right? Let him not be ashamed. That word shame or ashamed is it's that feeling of guilt or disgrace for committing an act that we know is wrong. To be ashamed is to have regret for an action that we have committed, that we know is immoral. Peter's command then to not be ashamed for suffering as a Christian reminds us that there is no real shame, there is no disrespect, there is no disgrace for suffering as a follower of Jesus or for being associated with Jesus. Even though various cultures would impose this kind of shame upon believers. Romans tried to shame Christians by insulting them by what they called them. The world today will insult us by calling us all sorts of things for our uh, conviction about who Christ is and our faith in him. But Peter says, don't be ashamed. Don't feel disgraced. Don't, Don't be beaten down or disheartened. You're not doing anything wrong. So we keep an unshaken faith in Christ even in the midst of distress by knowing the Holy Spirit is with us and also by knowing that we're suffering for what is good as we follow Jesus and live like him. So then for us to have an unshaken confidence, even as we suffer, even as we endure opposition for our faith, Christians, we must have no hint of uncertainty about the truth of the gospel. In order to suffer the way that Peter is calling the church to suffer, to keep a a confidence in Christ, you can have no doubt, no hint of uncertainty about the truth of the gospel. Now, does that mean that you will, Christian, never wrestle with doubt in your life? No, that doesn't mean that. But you should have no hint of uncertainty about what is true. You might have some doubt about how it all works. You might be uncertain about uh, how God affects salvation in the life of an individual. But you ought to never have uncertainty about the truth of it. Let's look at Peter's life as an example. In John 21, after Christ has risen from the dead, before he ascends to heaven, he meets with his disciples on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and they eat some fish together that morning. And as they're talking, Jesus there in John 21 tells Peter that he will be killed one day for his devotion to Christ. He tells Peter, one day you'll be taken where you don't want to go. You'll be dressed by other people. Your arms will be stretched out. You will die for your devotion to me. Then in Acts, the book of Acts, we see... In the course of that book, that Peter is arrested at least three times for preaching in the name of Jesus. He's imprisoned at least twice, that we know of from Acts, and he's beaten for his faith at least once. His fellow servant in the church in Jerusalem, Stephen, was stoned to death, and his close friend, Peter's close friend and fellow disciple, James, the brother of John, was executed in cold blood by Herod. Peter himself, less than five years after writing the letter that we're reading this morning, would be put to death during the persecution of the insane emperor Nero. And by all accounts, knowing all that Peter knew, having seen all that he saw, having watched, and watched the suffering that his brothers in Christ endured, having endured the suffering that he himself endured, never wavered at the threat of harm or death for Christ. Only an absolute certainty about the person and work of Jesus and the good news of the gospel can get a man through what Peter went through in his lifetime. I pray that we might endeavor to have the very same certainty as we prepare to suffer with confidence in Jesus. Friend, have no uncertainty. If you're endeavoring to suffer well for Christ, have no uncertainty that the gospel is true. That Jesus really did die for your sins. That he really did rise again. And that by faith in him you really can be saved. You really are saved. We want to keep an unshaken confidence in Christ in the midst of distress. And finally, verses 17 through 19, we are to trust the results of suffering to a good God knowing you will suffer, expecting it, expecting it with joy, keeping confidence in Christ, we are to trust the results of our suffering to a good God. Why? Because the result of suffering is sanctification. The result of our receiving oppression for our faith is to be made more like Jesus, to to have our attachments to sin uh, broken and, and pressed further apart. Peter speaks in verses 17 and 18 here about judgment coming upon the house of God. He says, "It's time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will be for the what will be the outcome of those that do not obey the gospel of God? And if righteousness is scarcely saved, what will be uh, if the righteous excuse me is scarcely saved? What will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Judgment here, judgment coming upon the house of God. Difficult thing to talk about, maybe a difficult thing for you to read. So let's try to unpack that a little bit." Judgment coming upon the household of God should not be understood uh, for those who are faithfully following Jesus as punishment for God's people, but as purification. God's judgment on the church is not for punishment, but it is for purification. One scholar says the judgment that begins with God's people purifies those who truly belong to God. And that purification comes through suffering, making believers morally fit for their inheritance, their inheritance of eternal life. Peter, as he writes this, talking about judgment that's coming upon the household of God, may have in mind, as he writes, that several places in the Old Testament where God speaks about bringing judgment upon his people so as to purify them. In Malachi chapter 3, we read there of God uh, God's word to the people of Israel, preparing them to receive his servant who will bring his judgment. Who will bring his judgment upon the people of Israel. But not, not for their punishment, but for their purification. So in Malachi 3... Verses 2 to 4, we read this. Who can endure the day of his coming, the day of the Lord's coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, familiar language, isn't it? And fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi. You know, the sons of Levi are the ones that serve as priests in the temple. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. God used judgment, judged his people, Israel, to purify them, to to bring about their holiness, to bring about their repentance and their recommitment to him and to his law and to his purposes so that they might offer good sacrifices, pleasing sacrifices. And so the same is true in the church, that God uses suffering not to punish us, church, but to purify us. This much is true, not just from what Peter says here in chapter 4, but also from what he said in chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. We read that earlier, that comparison there of our trials as, as fires that purify gold. The trials that we face in this life for our faith are like fire, purifying, purifying our faith so that it will be shown for its true value on the day of Christ's coming. Though it may be hard, the results of suffering are beyond compare. Verse 18, then, is a citation of Proverbs eleven thirty one. There where Peter says, If the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Here, Peter uses this text as an illustration from God's word about the effects of God's judgment. Now, this... Phrase, if the righteous is scarcely saved, may be a difficult one for us to understand. What does that mean? Does it mean that Christians are barely saved? That we're just by the skin of our teeth saved from, from hell and, and damnation and, and, and eternal separation from God? No. That word scarcely actually means uh, not barely, not by the skin of our teeth, but with great difficulty. So we should understand this phrase this way If the righteous is only saved as with great difficulty, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? The point is not that, Christian, you have been barely saved from your sin by Christ's death in your place, his resurrection, your faith in him, but that it has cost God dearly to save you. Your salvation does not come at a pittance, it's no little thing to God to pay for your forgiveness of your sins. It's a big deal for God. It comes with great difficulty. What sort of difficulty? The difficulty that brings God the Father to send his own son to die for us. His son who knew no sin was made to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus pays the penalty for your sin when he didn't have to pay the penalty for any sin. It's no small thing for God to send his son to die for you. And it com- it's not easy We see in the Gospels, Jesus, the night before he's he's going to be betrayed and arrested, he's praying there in the the garden and and he's sweating drops of blood from the physical, emotional, mental distress that he is going through, praying, God, if there's any other way, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. Jesus, Jesus didn't go to the cross skipping and whistling Dixie. He went to the cross beaten Bloodied, his back, the flesh of his back shredded, nailed to the cross, suffering for hours, finally dying for your sin. Sin is a big deal. Sin is deadly. Sin is what destroyed Christ's body and spilled his blood. You weren't just barely saved. And you're not saved with with ease. It's no little thing that God has saved you. God has gone to great difficulty. He's gone to great lengths to show you his love for you. And his desire to be made right with you. Or for you to be made right with him. And he went to great lengths to make that possible. Through great difficulty. Christ has purchased our salvation. If the righteous is saved with much difficulty. What will become of the unrighteous? There's a warning here, isn't there? There's a warning here for the unbeliever. For the one who has, as Peter says, not obeyed the gospel of God. The judgment that comes upon the one who disobeys the gospel will not be purifying. It will be punitive. For the one who does not trust Christ, his sins are still unpaid for. There is still a debt of sin yet to pay to God. And for the one who does not know Jesus, who is not united to Christ by faith in him, will pay for his own sins. Christ's death is paid the penalty for your trespass against God. But for the unbeliever, the wrath of God, friend, you who do not know Jesus, God's wrath is still upon you. It is still yet to be endured for your disobedience to him. And so if you are not yet a Christian, friend, today I pray that you would trust Jesus today for the forgiveness of your sins, that you would trust in him to make you right with God, knowing what all that God has done to make you right with him through trusting Jesus. Why would you trust anything else? Know today that if you don't trust Jesus, you remain fully responsible for the results of your sin. No one else will pay for them. You're on the hook. But if you trust in Christ, God does not merely wink at your sin. He doesn't just say, oh, yeah, it's no big deal. No, if you trust in Christ, the the penalty that you owe for your sin has been transferred. God doesn't just wipe it away. It still has to be paid, but it's been transferred. And it's been paid by Jesus, the sinless son of God in your place. Peter highlights the importance here of obeying the gospel. Obeying the What does it mean to obey the gospel? Well, let's review what the gospel is. We've already talked about it many times this morning. But this is the gospel. That God has created all humanity, every man, woman, and child, for a relationship of love and devotion, obedience, and worship to him. We, on our own, have said, God, I don't want that. I don't need you. I, I can do better on my own. We've, we've said worse than that. We, we, we've said, God, not only do I not need you, but, but I reject you. We've sinned. We've, we've turned away from him. We've turned away from his design for our life. We, we have said, I don't want to love, obey, and worship you. Uh, my, my life is better spent doing other things. And in making that decision, which each and every one of us ever ha- has, God and, and, and us, we are separated because of our sin, because of our rebellion against him. There's a brokenness in our relationship. God is holy. We are not because we're we are sinful. We're not like him. We've fallen short of his glory. What we deserve for our sin is the punishment that any treason against a king deserves. Any traitor against a king deserves. We deserve death. We deserve to be cut off. We deserve to be removed from God forever. But God in his love for us, to show us his love for us, sends his son Jesus in the flesh to live a sinless life that we cannot live, to die on the cross in our place to pay the penalty for our sin and to be raised from the dead so that all who trust in him will have their sins forgiven, their debt of sin is paid for, and will will have uh, the hope of being also raised from the dead like Jesus to spend eternity with God in that perfect relationship of love, obedience, and worship. God sends Jesus to fix the design that we have broken by our sin. Obedience to the gospel is this, trusting Jesus. Setting aside your own will, your own desire for your life, and submitting it to Christ as king. Saying in sorrow for your sin, God, I am sorry for my sin. I, I regret that I, have done I don't want to walk in sin anymore. I want to turn from it. And God, I want to live in obedience to you. And I'm trusting your son, Jesus, who has paid for my sins to forgive me of my sins, to give me a new life, to put me in right relationship with you. I want to live every day as a follower of my new king, Jesus. That's what it means to obey the gospel. Friend who's not yet a Christian this morning, have you obeyed the good news? Have you obeyed the gospel that way? Have you set aside everything in your own desire for your own life that you might follow Jesus in faith? Following Jesus doesn't mean that your life immediately becomes easier. It doesn't mean that your finances will be fixed and your marriage will be fixed. And all of the other problems that you have in life will immediately uh, be solved and taken care of. But what it does mean is that you have something far greater. You have a relationship with the God who has created you. We're encouraged in verse 19 that when we suffer, entrusting the results of it to God, to keep doing good, to keep doing good, knowing that a good God is working good in us. That's if you ever want to know how to use a word so many times, it doesn't mean anything anymore. There's your example. When you suffer for when you suffer for your faith, keep doing good, keep doing what is right. Keep being obedient, knowing that a good God is working good things in you. Verse 19 seems to echo what we saw a few weeks ago in first Peter, chapter three, verse 17, in uh, Peter three seventeen, we read this, It is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And here in verse 19, we read again, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. The fact that God wills suffering, that he designs and desires suffering for his people, is undisputed to this point. But here, Peter emphasizes that God's will in allowing believers to suffer is ultimately good. God's will is good. His design for our suffering is good. Though the Christian endure opposition for his faith or for her faith, our trust in the good purposes of God should never waver. Nor should we be kept from continuing to do good in the name of Christ and in the name of the gospel. That's what we've been designed for in Christ as we trust in him. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, We are God's workmanship, those of us who had trusted Jesus. We are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. We're not saved because of our good works, but we're saved to do good works. Which God prepared beforehand, Paul continues, that we should walk in them. Christian brother, Christian sister, you have been saved by God's grace. It's his free gift to you that you have received by faith in Jesus. And you have been saved by God's grace through faith to do good in the name of Christ, to share the gospel primarily. This is the greatest thing you could ever do for another human being is to tell them how to have their sins forgiven, how to know the God who created him and how to have confidence in eternal life. But we do good in other ways for people, too. We provide for the needs of others when we have means to do so. We pray for those that we have opportunity to pray for. We encourage people. We live as good witnesses of the gospel in the world. That's what you've been saved for. And so as you do these good things, as you do these good works with faith in Christ, with confidence in Jesus and public affirmation of your faith in him, not hiding from Christ, in doing that, you will be the recipient of suffering that God has designed, that he has willed, that he has sent your way to be the the means by which he works to transform the character of your heart and mind to look like Jesus, to be ready for eternity. So friend, Christian, if you should suffer, if the day comes that you really suffer, you really endure persecution, opposition for your commitment to Christ on that day, have full trust that God is doing good in you through it. Know that as you receive suffering, God is doing good things in you. So rejoice in that suffering, knowing what God is doing. Rejoice in that suffering, looking forward to what will be a character in your life that looks more like Jesus, your savior. Trust the process of suffering in your life. And before I came on staff at this church, I was not in ministry, but I was in candy making, which some people might consider a ministry. I don't know. For several years in high school and in college, and shortly before I came on staff here, I was working uh, as a candy maker, for, uh, mostly uh, chocolate and things like that. Um, I can make really good caramel apples and fudge, and no, I will not come and make it for you this holiday season. But in the candy business, oh, there's almost a collective groan. In, the, in our stores, we made um, one, of, one of the, the most expensive uh, item that we had was a chocolate truffle. And yeah, ooh, yeah, I'm not making those for you either this Christmas because <laughs> they're hard to make. Truffle making is really difficult. Uh, it, it, it's uh, the primary ingredients are a couple different kinds of chocolate, coconut oil and some other different things to flavor it. And the process of making truffles is not easy. You have to melt the chocolate down and you put it in a mixing bowl and then, uh, and then you have to add the coconut oil and you've got to get that mixing. And then very slowly you add milk little by little as you're going through. And a weird thing happens when you're making uh, truffles. You, you see all the chocolate and the oil and it's all mixing together. But then as you start to add the milk, um, the chocolate and the oil start to separate again. And and you start to feel like this is a disaster. Everything that you've been is coming apart. So you just keep slowly adding milk, and you're tempted to quit because it's just looking worse and worse and worse as you go along. Uh, but over time, and sometimes it can take 30 minutes, 45 minutes, maybe even an hour of mixing for all the ingredients to be incorporated the way they will. Eventually, if you if you follow the recipe, the truffles come together, and the chocolate will uh, all of it will the filling will all come together, and and then you set it on a shelf to solidify, and then you get to. Scoop it out and roll it and do all the other fun stuff. But it is a, a stressful process making truffles. Because at every point along the way, you feel like you're failing. Like nothing is coming together. Like all of it is falling apart. Until the end. Until you've endured a long time with that chocolate. Christian, the suffering we go through as believers. Sometimes, similar to truffle making. But it will be so much harder than making chocolate truffles. If making truffles is frustrating, and enduring the process of making truffles is frustrating, how much more can we expect our suffering as believers to be difficult? We should. The the suffering we go through as Christians will be so much harder than the hardest uh, thing to make in a candy store. The process will be longer—not thirty minutes, not forty-five minutes, not an hour. It may last a lifetime. The challenges will be harder. You may face death. The pain will be much more difficult to bear at times. But the final result, Christian, will be so much better, so much more valuable, so much more worth it in the end. All because our good God is in control of it. Suffering, Christian, is God's recipe. It's his design for helping you to be done with sin and to look more like Christ as you prepare to spend eternity with him. So trust the process. Entrust your soul to God's good care. Keep repenting. Keep believing. Keep following Jesus. And your suffering will help you to do that. It's God's design. It's his purpose. Trust the process.